The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everyone. It's been a while. <laughs> a little while. So we're concluding this session today, this Bodhidharma session that we do each February. Hojin Sensei might have mentioned the history of how these began. In the early years, Dada Roshi would go back to Zen Center Los Angeles. Did you talk about that? Um, to study with his teacher, Mazumi Roshi, and leave us um, destitute. <laughs> uh, he was still completing his training, and there were a couple of seniors at that point. And so sessions were, um, that session was without talks, without interview. And they were short because the thought was, you know, who would come to and who could handle a whole week of sitting without talks and, and doksan. But that changed over time, and, and then they just became regular sessions. And then some years ago, we decided to sort of return to that practice of just sitting one session a year without talks and interview. So, and while you, you who are here for this session and continuous thread at home, I was up on the mountain doing a hermitage. So this image of Bodhidharma, who is, we consider our, the, the beginning of the Zen tradition, the Chan tradition in China, an Indian Dharma master. And the image that is often he brings forth is of him sitting in Shaolin, mountain facing the wall. And I've read scholars conjecturing, theorizing about what does that mean? What is the wall? What is facing the wall? Bodhidharma was just facing the wall. I remember one of those scholars was here many years ago and was telling me at lunch about a, 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 a movie he'd seen, I think a Chinese-made movie. It was a kung fu movie. And it showed Bodhidharma sitting in the cave as he had been for nine years, motionless, facing the wall. But then bandits came. And he said he, Bodhidharma was able to pivot like he was on a lazy Susan, and he jumped up and immediately began doing kung fu. <laughs> so he was as pliant as he was the moment he began sitting, I guess. So I was thinking, I want to read a little bit from Bodhidharma's teaching, but this question of why are we here? Why are we here in this hall? Why are we assemble as a Dharma community, practicing, doing session. Why do we do this? Well, if we went around the room, we would get everyone's own answer to that. And they're varied, right? Some people are seeking community. Some people want to learn how to meditate or do meditation with others. Some people have an affinity, kind of a temperament, 
that suits, that Buddhism suits them for? All kinds of reasons. People who engage it, those of you who engage it, as practitioners, as students, have your own reasons. And all of those are part of this. All of those are valid and they're all part of this. In whatever way this offers you something beneficial, something good, that's why we're here. That's why we're here. And in the deepest sense, in a sense, in the most important sense, we are here to transmit the Dharma, to transmit the light that began with the Buddha centuries ago, the great healer offering the medicine for the great sickness of delusion. That's why we're here. That's what has enabled us to come to this place. That's what motivated Dada Roshi. He was very clear all throughout his life. I mean, what else could have been moving within him, could have given him the strength, the conviction, the trust and faith to begin a place like this, the magnitude of this building, this properties, with so little to begin with, so little, so, so few sangha, so little money, from all reasonable accounts, so few chances of making it work. <laughs> what could have been motivating him other than a deep, not only intention or aspiration to transmit the Dharma, but a deep faith, and more than a faith, because it was his own experience of the great power of the Dharma to transform lives, to free us of greed, anger, and delusion, to put out the fires of our afflictive emotions, our tangled thought streams, to alleviate suffering. And that was the guiding principle, the guiding light. It's in our mission. It's in the rule of the order. It's, in, it's stated very clearly in those simple words, to transmit the Dharma. And that happens when we practice all the time, in all kinds of ways. Most of the time, it goes unseen. We don't notice it. We're not aware of it. There are formal ways in which that's done, like a Teisho, Doksan. But what is that transmission? It's an intimate encounter. It's meeting the Dharma intimately. And it's really important as a Sangha, it's really important for, for those of us in a teaching position to be very, very clear about that for reasons that I'll talk about. But because the Dharma is always taking place in a place, right? That transmission of the light is always taking place within a time and place, within a culture, a time of the world, a time of a country, a time of certain values, social norms, forces that we evolve to, like technology in our time, media, internet, politics, economics, our suffering planet. A monastery is a cloister, but it doesn't have, it has completely permeable walls. 
The world flows in through each of you who comes in. It flows in through each of us as we interact and are aware of and care for this world. And that's always been true. In the teachings of Bodhidharma, somebody asked him, what is the Bodhisattva practice? Bodhidharma said, it's not the practice of worthies and sages. It's not the practice of the common person. It's the practice of a Bodhisattva. If one is training to be a Bodhisattva, one neither seizes worldly dharmas nor rejects worldly dharmas. If you can enter the path with thought and consciousness as they are, as they are, there will be no common person or hearers capable of taking your measure. As is said, every locus of events, every locus of forms, and every locus of evil karma is used by the Bodhisattva, and all are made into Buddha events. This is the foundational understanding, principle of Buddhist practice. Not because it's good medicine, because, it's, because it brings it into accord with the world as it is with the Dharma, with ourselves. He goes on to say, they're all made into nirvana. Events, forms, relationships, evil karma, circumstances, societies, forces, all through the spectrum of what is beneficial and what is not. They are all made into nirvana. They are all the great path. How is this so? Because every locus is without locus. This is the locus of dharma. This is the locus of the path. The bodhisattva examines the fact that every locus is the locus of dharma. Locus is the place, the moment, the reality, the Bodhisattva doesn't reject any locus, nor do they seize on any. They don't select any. They make all of them into Buddha events. Birth and death is made into a Buddha event, and delusion is made into a Buddha event. And then the questioner says, well, all dharmas are without dharma, empty, of any intrinsic value, characteristic, quality, attribute. How is it that they are made into Buddha events? How do we do this? Bodhidharma said, the locus of making every locus into a Buddha, event, a Buddha event is not to make it so. There are no dharmas of making, and so in all places, good or otherwise, here the bodhisattvas see the Buddha. Now this teaching is, is given over and over and over again throughout all of the Mahayana teachings. In the Vimalakirti Sutra, there's a kind of a startling chapter in which the disciples of the Buddha have finally gone to see Vimalakirti, this great lay adept who is sick, sick with the illness of all human beings, all sentient beings. And as they get there, Shadiputra, who is one of the foremost disciples of the Buddha, looks around because there's a huge assembly of beings in this tiny little hut miraculously, and they all fit. But Shadiputra is there and thinks, if these great bodhisattvas don't leave before noontime, when are they going to eat? 
right? Because they have to eat before noon. That's th- that's the vinaya. That's the the rule. And and Vimalakirti says, Shariputra, you should just concentrate on the liberating teachings. Listen to the Dharma with a mind free of preoccupations with mental things, like lunch. (laughs) (laughs) And then the the, uh, uh, Shariputra wants to know where are they all going to sit? Because there are all of these people, all of these beings. Where are they going to sit? And so he's thinking this, Shadiputra is thinking this, and Vimalakirti says to him, did you come here for the sake of the Dharma or did you come here for the sake of a chair? Shadiputra says, oh, I came for the sake of the Dharma, not for the sake of a chair. Then Vimalakirti says, Shadiputra, the one who is interested in the Dharma is not interested even in their own body, much less a chair. They're interested in the Dharma, has no interest in matter, sensations, intellect, motivation, consciousness. They're not interested in the Buddha, in the Dharma, in the Sangha. They're not interested in recognizing suffering, abandoning its origination, realizing its cessation, practicing the path, the Four Noble Truths. If they're interested in anything, even in liberation, then they're not really interested in the Dharma, but interested in desires. The Dharma is not an object. If they're interested in any object, then they're not really interested in the Dharma. And finally, Vimalakirti concludes and says, Shadiputra, if you're interested in the Dharma, just simply take no interest in anything. And Robert Thurman, who translated this text in the footnotes, says, this essentially encapsulates the Buddhist tradition. Now, this can be very seriously misunderstood. To take no interest in anything means to not make it a locus, a place, a a thing. Because as soon as it becomes that, it it very quickly becomes an attachment. It becomes delusion. It becomes something outside of the self. And so even all of these most sacred aspects of the teachings, the three treasures, enlightenment itself, zazen, seshin, training, put anything outside of ourself. And within an instant, it becomes a place of attachment. And what happens in that moment is that our interest is not actually, is becoming, get, beginning to move away from the Dharma, move away from the path, and become focused on that locus, that place. In the Diamond Sutra, the Buddha says, because it is not a world, we can call it a world. The Garjana said, one should dread the afflictions, the kleshas, in other words, to see how powerful and how, how bound we can be within our afflictive emotions, but we should not end the afflictions. This is the bodhisattva path. For the bodhisattva, afflictions accord with one's nature. They are not opposing it. They are not something outside. They are not something separate from the path. The Garjana says they are one who, the bodhisattvas are, are not one who takes up nirvana as their very nature, as a place, a location, 
a goal, a thing. It is not the case that the burning up of the afflictions allows one to generate the seed of Bodhi. The teaching there is that the, the affliction suffering, dukkha, samsara, is the most powerful motivator for practice. And so there are teachings that say, and Nagarjuna talks about this, how the bodhisattvas should do all that they can to free themselves of all that binds us, but fall short of completely liberating ourselves. Because that's the bodhisattva vow, that we have to do all that together, do that all together. To not seize upon, to not reject, to not cling or grasp. And so what these teachings are saying, and in the beginning when we hear these, they may be very inspiring to us. In a way, they're very affirming of the world and our lives and practice because what's being stated very explicitly is that they are not separate, that they are not intrinsically opposed. But what that really means, how do we actually practice that and realize that, can seem light years away. So what Bodhidharma is saying is that in every moment, in everything, in all time and space, it is a Buddha event, a place of study, a place of entrance, a place of reflection, a place of freeing. What is the way that is being transmitted? What is the Dharma, the light that is being transmitted? These teachers are saying, is everything, it is every creature, it is every situation, it is you yourself. Examine the truth that every locus, every place, every moment is the locus of the Dharma, of the path. Just don't seize on it and do not reject it. That is, in a sense, our great challenge, our great imperative. I think of it sometimes as a great austerity. Right? It's like being invited into a sumptuous banquet in which every imaginable and unimaginable delicacy is present. And it's all there for you, for the, for the taking. There's a seat that is there specifically for you, that has been waiting there, and that seat will always be there. And you are invited to sit down and satisfy your hunger but do not seize on anything. Do not reject anything. Do not, in that profound Buddha event, do not turn any aspect of that into a location, something that you might take with you. How do we know when we're grasping or rejecting? How do we know, right? I mean, that's the practice. Right? When we're holding on, let go. When we're rejecting something, relax. How do we know when we're doing that? Your mind knows. Your body knows. It never doesn't know. Others oftentimes will know too. <laughs> 
And they might point that out. You may agree, you may not agree. But with a cluttered mind, with a being that is numb, that is shut down, that is built up walls for protection, all of those messages that are constantly coming through are not being received. And so all these teachings are really talking about intimacy with the self. To know the self, as Dogen says. To know it so deeply, so intimately, so profoundly, that you forget, which is not actually something you're doing. Right? You can't make yourself forget something. You just hold on to it tighter. It's something that seems to happen all its, its own. And that really only happens from such a profound path and practice through countless moments. Countless moments of not seizing and not rejecting and meeting this as a Buddha event, as a possibility, as an opening, a reality. That in that moment when you might turn away, you think, no, 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 this is actually what I asked for. This actually is here to serve me. Samsara is living within seizing and rejecting as a way of life. The rules are simple. (laughs) Everybody knows them. You don't even have to know them for it to be fully operational. Samsara is seizing and rejecting as ways of life, as a path to success, as a model for behavior. To enter into the Dharma, to pass through that mountain gate, is to have begun to lost some faith in that. To want to encounter what is true and to have some sense that there is something that is true. Others have encountered it. To have some sense of a possibility that you, little old you, can stand alongside the Buddhas and ancestors, Bodhidharma, Dogen, Mahapajapati. We also have to be willing to face what is difficult before we even know what that means. At the same time that we're creating ideas about what that means, which will not be what it is when we face them. I remember so many moments in my early training, listening to my teacher sit on this seat, talk about those challenges, those barriers, the cave of the dragon, and me thinking just, yes, I'm ready for that. That's why I'm here. And then when I encountered them, I thought, this just sucks. (laughs) And I had no sense of connection between what was happening for me in that moment and what I was so enthusiastically embracing in listening to my teacher. I mean, literally, like, no connection. I just wanted this to stop. And so we enter this great hall and sit in stillness and silence. We need that, actually. And the discipline of not turning away, the commitment, the agreement, the joyfully given agreement to actually begin to revolutionize that old, old habit 
of turning, turning, turning away. And to know there will be resistance as we meet all of our interests, the chair, lunch, all the things, right? Because they still have flavor. And so we sit. I mean, really try and appreciate the power of that. It's, it's difficult, I think, for many. It was for me in the beginning of my early years to really appreciate because I was just so consumed with me, right, and, and my own turbulent mind and body and tension and seizing and rejecting and the whole catastrophe, as my teacher would say. <laughs> that was just occupying all of my attention. And I pretty much just wanted it to stop. Go away. Leave me be as though it was not me. So to really appreciate the power of this, the revolution of this, to begin to actually meet the world without trying to win, without employing the tools of control or domination or retreat. As we begin to let go of our long-standing interests, what tends to happen is we develop new ones, spiritual ones, Dharma ones, that become new locations, places, things. It's kind of inevitable. We begin to think about what begin to formulate ideas. We often, pr probably pretty generally, come in with ideas about what the Dharma is, what it should to be, what it should be. I remember somebody coming for an introductory retreat many, many years ago. Many years ago. And I was showing him to the dorm. I mean, I don't know if he'd been here half an hour, an hour maybe. And then I went away to register more people. I was a registrar and he came to me and he says, I'm leaving. I said, really? He goes, yeah, this isn't, you guys aren't practicing the Dharma. I said, oh. <laughs> he was very, very confident. To make every locus a Buddha event is to not make it into Buddha, into Dharma, into Sangha, into something. <coughs> and so we have to remember this, and we have to remember this, and we have to remember this. How do we know when we're grasping? Read the signs. Become adept. Recognize dukkha. Know yourself. It's kind of your job as a practitioner. Nobody else can do it. And the more we do it, the easier it gets and kind of the harder it gets. Because there's more than we thought. And so in practice, we meet ourselves, we meet each other, we come together from our own worlds, which we think is really just the world. And we come together as a sangha, which means the virtue of harmony. And we agree that we will show up and wash our cups and be in silence when it's time to be in silence and engage each other in the ways that we do in practice. And so we walk together. We walk together. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes we walk against each other. We have opinions. We have a lifetime of associations and preferences and desires. 
We put meaning into everything. We know what we want. Everybody who comes here wants something. I mean, let's just admit it. Every single person who comes here wants something. So when we meet the reality of what this is, and what we want is in accord with that, good news. When it's not, can we yield? Can we yield? In other words, what will we place our trust in? So we have opinions and preferences and desires, and guess what? Everybody else does too. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) This is some kind of party being created here. And sometimes those opinions and associations and desires will walk together, and sometimes they'll bump into each other. And you know what? Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Rather, inspire yourself. Use such moments to inspire yourself. What was the essential point? What is the essential point? I remember moments sitting in this hall, feeling very competitive, making a case about how others were better, and this and that, getting into this, getting into rants on that, all kinds of stuff. And sometimes if I had enough presence of mind, I would stop and I'd say, hang on, is that why you're here? Is that why I'm here? And the answer was always very clear to me. No. Okay, very well. Get on with it. So how do we practice this bodhisattva path? Not seizing, not rejecting. Well, these teachings say, don't love the harmony. Don't hate the discord. As Master Dogen says, don't hate what's far away and love what's close. Don't hate what's close and love what's far away. Don't add weight and don't make it too light. Let your eyes and ears be bright and clear. And so to think and speak and act with compassion and love and kindness and patience, this is what we come together and agree to do, right? I mean, that's our basic agreement. We're going to do that. And a lot of times we do, and then sometimes we don't. Don't be surprised. And when not, when we don't come together this way, sometimes we see what we're doing, and we take responsibility, and we practice it, we shift, we return to our vows, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we see, and we don't try to shift. We dig our heels in. And sometimes we just don't see anything. It's not our problem. It must be somebody else's. Don't be surprised. Why? Obviously, I'm not saying to be, you know, be complacent, be passive. Of course not. But don't be surprised because we bring ourselves to this and we are here doing this on this path of enlightenment as we are still deluded, how is it not going to come out? Mutually polishing jewels, bright, priceless jewels that are already perfect and brilliant and whole and priceless. This is just basic standard practice, what I'm describing. It's nothing fancy, nothing new. It's been happening forever. 
But maybe it's helpful to just call it out so that when we walk together, that we accept, because we expect that. When we don't, we don't expect that. Right? How can that be happening? Bodhisattvas, Dharma practitioners. And then we, in our sangha, throw in a little kicker. Because we want to practice and fulfill our vows in this particular time and place, in history, in country. And make into Buddha events things that have not been made into Buddha events for a very long time. Bring into our awareness to see, to examine, to reflect, to understand, to liberate things that have not been taken up in this way. The many forms of inequity and oppression and injustice and ill will and false ideologies and embodied attitudes and emotions. I was just reading that a a well-known congressperson, who will go unnamed, who's known for sometimes stretching the truth a little, tweeted that six billion illegal immigrants have flooded into the United States during the Biden. There there are less than eight billion people in the world. (laughs) And so as we consciously bring our attention to this, we call this beyond fear of differences. We are afraid. Why are we afraid? What are we afraid of? All of the categories of differences, of how you are not me, and I am not you, and that category makes all the difference. And that category is real. It's who I am, it's who you are, and worlds have been built around that, and we have inculcated that, and we act that out, don't be surprised. And so what is it now to study the self? To let go of the self. How much larger the self has become. How much more, in a sense, complex. And each and every category, and there are good ones. We can create categories around goodness, right? Let's create a category around being a bodhisattva. Oh, that's a great category. What a beautiful box. Come in to our box. (laughs) When it becomes a box, it's not beautiful. It's not a bodhisattva. And because each and every category ultimately leads to suffering. And it doesn't take very long, actually. It's pretty instantaneous. But so many of these have been predicated on creating pleasure for some and pain for others. And it must be so. That's the predication. There will be those who, who benefit and there will be those for, who suffer. As James Baldwin famously said, why do white people need black people? Why do the rich need there to be poor people? Why is that necessary? Why do we need gender to be clearly defined, clearly bounded. Why is that needed? 
And when that is challenged, what is the fear that we encounter within ourselves and others? Everything that arises, the Buddha said, arises out of cause and conditions. What is the cause? What are the conditions that are taking place right now? As Buddhist practitioners, that should get our attention. We should want to know. Because in that moment, we are bound. And when it arises in ourselves and others, we shouldn't be surprised and we should be attentive. Because in these arisings that I keep saying we shouldn't be surprised about, that's where we create harm. And in all of this, the essential truth is to transmit the Dharma. To transmit the Dharma. That's what it's about. To liberate the self from suffering. And that when we engage in anything in Dharma practice that brings our attention away from that, it may look like Dharma, it may sound like Dharma, it may have positive consequences. But at the same time, we are moving away from something. And that's where protecting, if that is what we want, becomes paramount. You know, at the front of the gate, I think of AHA, I looked, but I couldn't find it. But I remember when I was there, these massive main entry gates. There, there's calligraphy. And I think one, in, one side says something like, only those concerned with the question of life and death should enter here. And the other one says something about being joyful, I think. I'm probably severely paraphrasing that. But. And so we could put that on our front gate, front door as we enter, just to be clear. And what we find out that that means is this. On the path to enlightenment, you will encounter your own delusions and those of others. They will be painful in varying degrees. On the path to compassion, you are asked to care for and not abandon those who might hurt you. When you hurt others, you're also asked to care for and not abandon them. You may have a lifetime of experiences with those who appear differently to you. You may unconsciously put them into categories, as you have been taught to do. You may then believe in those categories and what they mean to you as real, and they're not. And so you are respectfully asked to care for and not abandon others and yourself, and to stop and see and to know the self, and to keep the true Dharma as your light and path. You are here to see what is real and what is not real. This is of the utmost importance. Please do not forget. And so I'll end with a poem. Looking out, fires burn everywhere. Some just lit, some tearing across the countryside, some cooling. Each and every one comes from a spark ignited by you and me. Each and every one is a cry into the lonely night of a pain seen but not recognized. Recognized but not understood. Understood, but not cared about. Cared about, but not attended. What is the Bodhisattva path? The power of a mind that sees beyond knowing, a heart that extends beyond boundaries and breaks. Each day, 
and spills out a love that cannot be tamed, a kindness that startles the skeptic, a patience that is free of failure. This wisdom heart pulses quietly. Do you hear it? It is calling to you. It is calling to you. It is always calling to you. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.